Patience Agbabi is an acclaimed British poet and performer. She studied English language and literature at Pembroke College, Oxford, and has an MA in creative writing, the arts and education from the University of Sussex. Her debut children's book, The Infinite, published in 2020, is the first book in the leap cycle. It's an inventive, thrilling science fiction time travel story. She joins me today in the reading corner to talk about the second book in the cycle, The Time Thief. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Patience into the reading corner. What I wanted to talk about first, the idea of leaping and where that comes from. It was quite an exciting eureka moment. Um, so I had the idea of Elle being a girl who was really into athletics and the Olympics and her favourite Olympics being the 1968 one where Bob Beeman broke the world record with his incredible leap of eight metres 90, which of course is something that excites me as well because I share a lot of Elle's passions, not surprisingly. So at that stage, I thought, well, if she's really into actual long jump and she's really into the Olympics, the Olympics only happen in leap years, the Summer Olympics. So then I thought, well, why not make her a leapling born on the 29th of February? There is actually a word leapling. It exists in the language. People think I made it up, but I didn't. Um, and then I, I I just had this moment when I it was the idea of sort of the leap, the word leap kind of I let off the word leap quite literally and, and thought, well, what if she could actually leap through time? Because she's already obsessed with time. She's obsessed with 1968, you know, and, and she's obsessed with the fact that she only has a birthday once every four years. So why not push it one step further? And that was the kind of what if, you know, what if she mm-hmm. could leap through time? And once I had that, it was then possible to kind of start building up a whole secret leapling community around her so much more interesting than wizards it has to be said and while you're talking about leapling I mean there are other words that occur in the story as well all around leap years you know bisextile intercalary is also specifically about this taking away days from the calendar isn't it yes that's right and I, I had I didn't know the word before I, I was just trying to brainstorm a name for her school and um, I, I had several names which weren't really working and then I suddenly came across intercalary and I thought intercalary international that's got a lovely ring to it. it it sounds real I love it when there's something about words and language I think when you get to a point where something just rings true yeah you know, you know you've completely made it up and you think oh yes I can I can live with that Yeah, really good. It's obviously the poet in you, and we might talk about that in a little while as well. That's the idea of leaping. Now we've got to talk about this wonderful heroine uh, that you've got who tells the story, Elle. Elle could be Elle for leap. Elle, the word like in Cinderella, just means she, her, the girl. Um, And she is, um, she's autistic. But tell us a little bit more about how she came about. I wanted to write from a a 12-year-old girl's perspective very, very early on. I think 12 was quite a formative year for me where I I moved from Sussex to North Wales. I had to really make new friends. I I, I was quite depressed for a year. I, I really struggled to sort of fit into a new community. So I think I've always in a sense, wanted to sort of go back to, to that and, and in a sense relive that, maybe through fiction. So um, so Elle's kind of, the whole the whole series starts with Elle being on the eve of her 12 or 3 leap birthday. Um, giving her the name Elle, yes, I wanted to play off the idea of the, 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 the French meaning with she, um, but also it being a palindrome. So it reads the same way backwards as forwards. And and I, of course, the wordplay appealed to me. I think that also kind of fed the, the idea of time travel. So um, so all those things went together. But also around the same time, I've been 
I've been doing a lot of research about autism in girls. I have a two two boys. My older boy's autistic. He's 15. And um, so I've read a lot about autism over the years. And I was very aware that um, autism just wasn't represented. Girls weren't represented. It was as if they were sort of invisibilized or they're, they're misdiagnosed. Um, I know autistic girls um, who have been diagnosed. I know some who probably are and haven't been diagnosed. So I, I just found it actually kind of interesting, but also quite poignant and quite a political issue on lots of ways. And I thought it was very important um, to hear the voice of, of an autistic girl. There's not very many in literature, not certainly not in children's mm-hmm. literature. And um, and also I wanted Elle, Elle to be black. You know, I'm, you know, black. I'm of Nigerian heritage. And I, I, I wanted I wanted Elle to have that in common with me. And I wanted her to be out there as a sort of black autistic heroine, because even rarer in literature, do you get black autistic heroines? Mm-hmm. So I think all those things kind of fed uh, the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important. Uh, her autism is very important and central, mm-hmm. but not necessarily the book isn't about autism in no. that sense. It's about many things. And also, I think I, I I sort of built off that and wanted to further look at neurodiversity in the sense that, you know, um, one of her, her friends is MC Squared and he has ADHD. Um, her, her best friend, Big Ben, um, is autistic, but also has um, dyslexia. So I, I sort of it's very aware in in the community where I live. You know, a lot of my my friends have sons and daughters who are neurodivergent, and so mm. it was important to sort of represent a little bit across the board as well. Mm. These things only become a problem when we have a system that expects certain things to be normalised in a particular way. Um, and one of the things that you do in the story is to break down the stereotype of what it means to be autistic because although you've said you know big ben and um Elle are autistic they're differently autistic it's very important i think to have more than one autistic character because the the danger is then people think oh that you're saying that autism is that um and i think because there were so few books with autistic heroes or heroines out there there's still a danger i think of people saying oh well that's what it is and that's what it is and actually it's just there are as many people as the people as you know, mm. can be autistic there's so many different ways people are multifaceted and so i think i wanted to sort of get that across and yes celebrate what Elle would call i guess her specialist needs um i deliberately didn't use the word special i used the word specialist because i wanted to mm both show that she had challenges, but also show that she had amazing talents. Mm. And, um, and of course, leaping is clearly <laughs> one of those talents. A mm. couple, couple of other things about the heroine, and then we'll get on to this exciting uh, story. In some ways, she has things in common with you as well. I mean, she's a, a poet and she wins a poetry prize and she's an athlete so she's got elements of you in her was it nice to be able to write that aspect of yourself into the character oh yes it was very liberating Elle has a lot in common with me I mean even you know even even though I'm I'm not you know I'm not diagnosed autistic I have some traits so for example when I was younger I had terrible problems with food and with textures of food and that was something I wanted to explore in the book. I mean, I, I talk a bit more about it in, in the first book, in The Infinite, but it's still there in The Time Thief. Although she's she's getting older, she's finding ways of, of managing that. So that was an issue. But yes, I'm also an athlete um, <laughs> and not a very good one. When I was younger, I was a lot better and I was passionate about it and I'm still passionate about watching athletics and I'm, I'm part of a, an athletics club. So that's that's very important and exciting for me. And um, yes, just the poetry, the, the 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 love of language is is also important. And I think that was one of the early things I wanted to do with the book was to 
celebrate her voice and very much a voice that, that really revels in language, that really enjoys, you know, the sound of it, the sense of it, the taste of it on her tongue. I mean, I'm almost quoting verbatim from um, from the first book there. And I actually have that on my my Amazon author page <laughs> because it's me as well. So, um, so yes, we're obviously we're two very different characters. Elle is much, much more courageous than I am in life. But um but I think I think also for my obviously as my first my first children's books, it was great to sort of put a lot of myself I think into into the heroine. Mm. It just made it a lot easier to write. Now, can we just uh, set up this second story? Can you tell us a bit about it, perhaps without giving too much away? <laughs> okay. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so you know, everyone knows now who Elle is, and she basically. I can say that she she's a member of this sort of youth crime fighting group. They fight crime across time and they're called the Infinites. So at the beginning of The Time Thief, Elle goes on a school trip with, with her intercalary international um, friends and um, they go to the Museum of the Past, the Present and the Future. And she's won a poetry competition, a 1752 poetry competition in particular. And, um, and, and the idea is she's going to accept her prize and, and, and read the poem to, to her friends. But um, this this seventy two gallery seventy fifty two gallery um, houses a, a very rare uh, glass. It's it's an hourglass and it's called the infinity glass. And as part of the ceremony, they bring out the glass and everybody's very excited. But then suddenly the glass is stolen in front of them. Somebody kind of appears out of thin air, steals the glass. Someone else appears out of thin air, disappears with them, and everyone's really stunned. And Elle thinks, "Oh my goodness." This is a job for the infinite. So I, I have to I have to you know retrieve this infinity glass. Mm-hmm. So that happens in chapter one, and then all, all the stuff ensues after that. Now it took me down such an interesting route of checking things out because I couldn't believe some of the coincidences that just turn out to be real. Like 1752, I did not know was the year that the calendar was changed from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. Um, and so that's a very special year for this story, isn't it? Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, it was an absolute gift, really, because it also happened to be a leap year. It was just perfect. Um, I, I, I sort of I previously knew about 1752 only because my boys had told me from It Can't Be True, one of their one of their favourite books. So I was like, wow, they really cut 11 days from the calendar. So I thought that Leaplings would be fascinated with that, of course. And, um, and, and by another coincidence, which is even more amazing, it happened to be the year that, um, that, that, that a young black slave, 10-year-old slave, Francis Barber, became servant to the lexicographer, Dr. Johnson. And um, it was astonishing. I think it was April or May 1752. It, it occurred just after Dr. Johnson's wife died. Um, so I, I couldn't resist, of course, putting them in into the action. In fact, they're quite central to the action. Mm. And great because there aren't many black characters in history that are written about. And he he was actually very celebrated in his time. Yes, and of course, um, Dr. Johnson um, left left him his fortune in his will, which was unheard of in those days. And of course, some there were racists there who weren't very happy about that. But but he did he did inherit the money. It happened. Yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about the antagonists in this story. This is the vicious circle. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with the vicious circle. I think um, 
you know, the, the, I mean, the, the whole series is kind of inspired by sci-fi, but there's also some film noir there. I mean, let's face it, they, they're gangsters. You know, they're child-friendly gangsters, but they are gangsters. And um, but you know, there's this twelve of them. They sit, they sit round a table, so you know, signifying the the numbers of the clock. So they're each called, you know, one, two, three, four, etc. They obviously have their other names as well, but um, within that evil circle, they 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 have their numbers. And you know, L L has to face up. She has to face them, and she does so through disguise and. It's a really exciting way I think to to sort of show Elle's bravery but also to bring in this idea of kind of masking in a sense which is on two levels really because Elle hides her identity but also she's in a way masking because it's a term used where autistic people pretend to be neurotypical so I'm also able to sort of play with that idea I like to layer things as much as I can. Now, also in this exciting plot, there's lots of misdirection going on. We think the big villain is one person, and then, as often happens in these kinds of stories, it shifts. But one of the things I was really interested in was the view of education. I was really interested in the kind of school that they go to, where it's not just your traditional academic subjects, but music, maths, and movements. It makes you realize just how artificial the things are that we consider to be most important in education. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with education. I mean, at the Music Mass Movement School is that L just goes there for a, a school's activity day. So it's not actually a leapling school, but it's a kind of, it's a school that becomes more popular in the future where it, it's just a different way of looking at things. So as most people know, you know, to learn maths, often to sort of do physical things and, you, and use actual objects as opposed to sort of the dry, more um, abstract maths. Is, is a way of engaging far more students. And I, th- I think the way that people teach primary could be continued more into secondary than it is. The curriculum, you know, it, it's still quite old fashioned. It does force teachers to sort of do this almost, I'd say, lecture style teaching. And I think there's so many other ways, like kinesthetic learning, for example, you know, get people up and about and moving around. I just think there's, there's, there's so many possibilities out there. So it's something I really wanted to explore I've got another um, another school I don't mention in in this book, but I will in book three called E College E, <laughs> which of course is um, another bit of wordplay there. But they you know they do things like mindfulness and um, conflict resolution. So there's all these things I think that we we could learn in school, but don't really learn enough of mm. to sort of prepare us for life. Um, we've already said that you have um, a passion for poetry. There was one particular quote that I picked out from the story that I thought was really interesting. It says, I have a passion for poems. They allow words to break the rules. Some believe that poetry is putting language in a cage, but I believe the opposite. The cage is liberation. The caged word truly sings. I love that. So you are a poet. So where was that coming from? For me, poetry that sort of really breaking down the 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 sounds of words the sort of linguistic meanings all the the multiple meanings is so liberating and leap is an obvious example where just a word leap a simple word like leap can mean so many things uh, as i've demonstrated and so i think a lot of a lot of my ideas for this whole series really just came from single words and single ideas and the sound of the words um also dialogue I, I, a lot of a lot of the, the book kind of came from hearing voices in my head and and just getting the characters to to talk to each other and bounce off each other, and mm. um, I found that an incredibly creative process. It's interesting because when you go back to 1752 or when they leap back to 1752, 
uh, you are aware that the characters speak differently without you layering it on too heavily so that it becomes difficult to understand. Yes, I, I have to keep the sentences shorter. I mean, a 18th century prose is amazing. It's just so linguistically flourishing and everything. It's, <laughs> it's so flamboyant. But yes, you, you have to rein it in a little bit when you, you know, you're know you writing for... I, I don't think I'm writing for 8 to 12-year-olds, really. I think I'm writing for, for everybody. But um, mm. I say 8 to infinity because it, it also looks visually interesting when you see it on the page. But um, I wanted to sort of try to sort of mirror that the, the sort of formality I suppose of, of 18th century language and um, and in a way have a bridge have Anon is this, this teacher from from the music Mass and movement school who is obsessed with the 18th century she's friends with Dr Johnson and she kind of takes them back to 1752 on the first visit but she she speaks as if it's the 18th century even in the 21st so I thought she was a nice bridge. Do you share her admiration for Dr Johnson and what he did? I think the dictionary was an incredible achievement. But I think I think he was obviously a compassionate person. He looked after the underdog. He looked out for the underdog. He saw good where other people turned away. And so, yes, I, I very much admire that side of him. I mean, there's other sides of him where we really differ. But he was such a lover of language. I couldn't help but but sort of fall in love with with the idea of the dictionary and have and have Elle fall in love with the idea of his dictionary and actually mm. get to meet the dictionary mm. in progress. I mean, one of the things that he says, I don't know if it, it is an actual quote, but he's talking about people trying to fix language. And he says, but language refuses to be fixed. English language in particular absolutely refuses to be fixed. Yes, it, and that, that is from the preface to, um, I think it might have been the first edition, the 1755 edition of, of, of his dictionary. And I love that. And I think he's, I think he said something like that he had originally thought he could fix the language by creating a dictionary and then realised quite quickly that, that that was impossible. It was an impossible task, but all he could do was kind of just show the language as it was. And ironically, of course, using lots of Shakespearean quotes, you mm. know, which, which in themselves were hundreds of years old by the time he was writing. So that in itself was interesting. Uh, of course, leaping back to uh, 1752 means you get the chance to explore the topography of London during that time. And that was quite different. I mean, they go to St Paul's, she sees the Houses of Parliament. So you must have had to have done a little bit of research to get a sense of what London was like at that time. Yes, I really did. I mean, Big Ben didn't exist, for example. You know, so she's her best friend, Big Ben. But but Big Ben, of course, wasn't didn't exist. Um, you know, you couldn't walk along the South Bank. Obviously, St Paul's Cathedral was relatively new, so it was a very different London. I, I managed to find some amazing online maps, and I I, I consulted SI Martin, who who does um, oh, Black yeah. London walks. He's amazing, and um, he he actually sort of gave me a, a link to to one of these these ancient maps. I think it was a 1750 map of London. So it was fascinating just sort of seeing seeing some of the old... And, of course, there's places like Fleet Street, which still exist. Mm. So, you know, something hasn't changed. And, of course, the river is still the river, but the river was much wider then. Mm. And, um, and London Bridge, of course, was very interesting because, of course, it had buildings on it. Mm. And mm. Westminster Bridge was new. So all, all that was fascinating. When you're writing about the leaping, do you enjoy leaping in the past more or in the future they must give you different kinds of opportunities as a writer yeah I mean the, obviously with the future you're, you're making stuff more making more stuff up aren't you and and that's 
that's very exciting. The infinite was leaping to the future, is leaping to um, 2048. So it's near future, which is kind of slightly easier to manage because you think, well, uh, you know, I looked up things like, I thought, well, flying cars, are we going to have flying cars in the future? Because we have flying, flying cars exist now. It's just that there aren't very many of them. So it was interesting looking at um, inventions that we have currently that aren't particularly you know, used and think, well, you know, maybe they'll be used more in the future. And of course, uh, there are also ecological issues I looked at. That, that was that was the main issue. You start thinking, well, what would the year be like in my original idea was 2050, you know, before I got into the whole leap thing, because everybody was talking about 2050, you know, as the year by which, you know, we have zero emissions, et cetera, et cetera. But 2048 was the closest to 2050. So I thought, yeah, right, that's going to be that leap year. So very, very different, very different. I mean, it was lovely having the parameters of going back to the past, back to 7052. At the same time, there's, there's a wonderful freedom going ahead in time. So so both both are valuable and exciting. Mm. It sounds like you're writing or have written the third book now. As you get more involved in Elle's world, does that world become more and more solid for you as you're writing? I suppose in a way I did think, yeah, book one, future book, book two, 18th century, book three is going to be, going to be some 19th century um, to give a little bit away. And, but also, also some leaping into the future as well. It's a bit of both. But yes, the, it, the world gets bigger. I think that's the thing when, when you're writing a, a series, you, you, you sort of, you start off a bit more micro and you become more, more macro and the sort of implications of the leaping community become broader and wider and um Yes. And of course, you're also your characters grow, grow up, you know, they grow mm. a, year, a year older with each book. And of course, their perspective also becomes broader and, and deeper. So that's the challenge. And of course, because I'm I am continuing with the first person narrative, it still mm. be through Elle's voice and, and obviously seen through her eyes. Um, that's also an interesting challenge because it's it's still the world according to Elle. But at the same time, of course, there are things that Elle might not know or understand, but he's starting to grow, he's growing up and he's growing to understand. So that's that's quite exciting. I'm, I'm really, really enjoying that, you know, watching, watching Elle and her friends get older. Now, you've been a poet for many years, an award-winning poet, and have made this transition into writing a novel later on in your writing career what kind of joys has it brought you and was it just an easy transition or were there some challenges well my fourth poetry book was was, was um Chaucer's Canterbury Tales it was a remix of, of the Canterbury Tales of a very adult book um, not surprisingly taking on Chaucer but of course it they're stories they're, they're all stories and the, the way I chose to do it it is very character-led as well so um you know mirroring Chaucer's Canterbury Tales I had a kind of um rather than a general prologue where the characters were introduced I have my author biographies at the back so I got quite into that idea of of, of teller and tale and so in fact after that I, I kind of struggled to write poetry I didn't really know what to do and I thought maybe I'll write a long narrative poem or something I was just so hooked on narrative and character so in that sense it wasn't that huge a leap to decide to write a novel and I had thought about writing a novel about 10 years before and spoke to my editor about it and then telling tales came along and I couldn't resist and and did telling tales so so I have had that idea for a while and um and I suppose in a sense had L this character L in my head for a while the challenge I suppose was was plot (laughs) you know coming up coming up with my own plot because of course when you're doing the Canterbury Tales, you 
I, I kept the original plots or I used extracts from plots was suddenly to, to write a, a brand new book. I had to come up with my own plots. And that was harder for book one. It was harder for book two. Interestingly, because of the 1752 stuff and the, you know, the excision of the calendar it was slightly easier because in a sense, I already had that. That was ab- absolutely had to be in. So I had that element there already. And um, you probably guessed, I mean, you know, in terms of my poetry, I like working with form. Um, I like having parameters. I find them liberating. And so in a sense, having, yeah, having those parameters for book two made it easy. But yes, for book one, the, the, the plot was was much more difficult to manage. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I really enjoyed the story. It's given me so much to think about more than we can possibly fit into half an hour's uh, discussion. I can't wait to read the third book because I've already read the second one. <laughs> but thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been great. Yeah, thank, thank you, Nikki. It's been great speaking with you too. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.